Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. Let's bow our heads in prayer once more. Um, Lord Jesus, uh, I can't really uh, pray a better topical prayer given our message than what Paul just prayed for us. And so, Lord, I say yes and amen that you work a mighty act in our hearts um, that help us follow Jesus in the manner you've called us to follow Jesus, but even more so in the manner that you have empowered us to follow Jesus uh, in the hearing of the gospel, in the conversion of the soul, in the receipt of the Holy Spirit, in the commission um, to follow you. And so, Lord, we ask that those things be done um, so there might be salvation for the lost, even lost in this room and encouragement for those who are saved in this room. We pray this in your name. Amen. So uh, if you don't yet have your Bibles open there, you could turn to John. We're going to be looking at chapters 20 and 21 today. Uh, And this is our final series in our Easter Um, final sermon in our Easter series. And for the past uh, number of years, we've kind of extended our Easter sermon series past Resurrection Sunday and pulled it into uh, whatever today's Sunday is, the next Sunday. And we do that intentionally because the events of Easter are only the beginning of the story of Christianity. It is certainly the climax, but there's much left to live. Stopping the story of the gospel uh, at the story of Easter would be like putting down the series of the Chronicles of Narnia after book two. Yes, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you see Aslan's wonderful resurrection. You see that he alone has the power to save Narnia from the dark magic. But there is many more adventures, adventures with faith and doubt that the disciples of Aslan would have in this world. And so too, just as the story of Narnia was changed by the person of Aslan, we are changed when we see Jesus for who he is and we return back to the same world we were in as new people facing the old dangers of our heart with a new reality of redemption. In this Easter series, we've been spending time in the book of John, and there's this contrast we've wanted to see in the book of John, and that's that you see many people coming and believing in Jesus. But Jesus' commands to those who believed in him was not only that they would believe, but they would abide in his word. And despite the many and many who believe, the majority of those in the book of John stop believing. They fall away. They don't continue. But the disciples and Jesus' closest friends hear the same things and encounter the same Jesus, but they endure. So what did they see? More importantly, what did they understand which gave them abiding, enduring faith in Jesus? And so that's what we've been looking at is do we have a Jesus-shaped idea of who Jesus is? And on Palm Sunday, we looked at Jesus and we saw who Jesus is and how he loves his friends. On Good Friday, we examined why Jesus went to the cross, what motivated him to march towards the most tragic and yet the most triumphant moment of his life. And we saw in John chapter 13 that it was his love for his own people. In John chapter 14, it was his love for his father, the twofold motivation of love in Christ. And then last week on Resurrection Sunday, we saw what Jesus wants us to see about living life in a broken world. And because Jesus has died and rose again, we know that a life of faith in Jesus Christ is a life where everything is now part of God's plan for our good. That there are times where God might bring incredible sorrow for the purpose of bringing about unshakable joy. But today, we're going to look at this. We're going to see what Jesus wants us to see about following him. That is, what's next in the life of a believer? How are we to live if we put our faith in a savior like Jesus? If you're not a believer, today is a wonderful summary of what it's like to follow Jesus and the privilege we have as those who put our faith in Christ of living our lives for his glory. And our text today highlights three post-resurrection appearances. That is, Jesus has risen from the dead in bodily form, the same kind of body we will have when followers of Christ are resurrected in glory. And he appears three times in the Gospel of John to his disciples. 
And in those three encounters, Jesus is equipping and encouraging his disciples for how they are to follow Jesus with what's left of their life. And in these three scenes, we're going to see four points this morning. And that is in scene number one, we're going to see following Jesus is being sent by Jesus. In scene number two, we're going to see that following Jesus is belief in Jesus. And then in the last scene, we're going to look at two aspects of following Jesus. The first one is, is that following Jesus is trusting in the provision of Jesus. And then lastly, following Jesus is life and death for the glory of Jesus. And so we'll come back to that. If you're a note taker, don't worry about it. It'll be up on the screen again in a little bit. But our story today picks up actually the evening of Resurrection Sunday. So that morning, Mary and then Peter and John went to the tomb. But Peter and John saw the empty tomb, left, whereas Mary stayed. And as Mary stayed, she encountered the risen Lord. And she had since returned and told all of the disciples that Jesus is alive. And we know that not just because of an empty tomb, but because of seeing Christ in the flesh. And so our story today picks up this evening with the disciples knowing two things. The first is that the tomb is empty. And secondly, that Mary herself says that Jesus is alive for she has seen him. And read with me now, John 20, verses 19 through 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So before we get too far in to our sermon today, the first thing I want us to just look at in this quick snapshot here is the privilege of being met by Christ Jesus with the greeting, peace be with you. Why did Jesus lead with peace here? It's funny, my kids live for surprises uh, and how surprising it would have been for Jesus to like, pull those hijinks like, what's up? <laughs> like, but he leads with peace. Why is that? Because he knows that the last 72 hours of the disciples' life has been typified by anything but peace. <laughs> Their whole, whole world has been turned upside down. When Jesus appeared before them, the gap between who they were and who they think Jesus is got infinitely bigger. Here is the one who was God, the one who is now the firstborn from the dead, who will come again as he predicted to judge the living and the dead. And what a frightening experience for any normal human being this would have been. But the reality is, is one day each and every one of us will stand before this risen Lord and Savior. And indeed, if your world has not been turned now, it will be turned then. Everything will become clear for you as you encounter the greatness and holiness of who Jesus is. Whether you are a believer or an unbeliever, you will see Jesus in all of his staggering holiness, in all of his staggering beauty, in all of his staggering righteousness, and in your encounter with his greatness, not only will you see Jesus as terribly righteous, but you will actually see yourself in greater clarity because you will say, that's not me. That's not what I look like. That's not who I am but for the believer, when you encounter the broken reality of your sinfulness before holy and perfect God, there is the wonderful hope that Christ will meet you with the message, peace be with you. What qualifies that response from Jesus to you? What can you do to earn peace in the moment where everything seems to be turned upside down? Nothing. You can do nothing to earn this peace except for placing your faith in the one who by mercy gives us peace. 
This is what Jesus does on the cross. He takes away everything that we have done in sin and he pays the penalty for it in his body. So that when you stand before God, when you stand before the supreme judge, your rap sheet is clean because Christ has borne your penalty for you. And we access that by faith, that Jesus has done that, the simple act of faith. And so if you stood before Christ today and you were struck with the same terror the disciples were struck with, would you know that Jesus says, peace be with you? What confidence do you have that that would be your reality? Because my hope is not that you would just say yes and cross your fingers in hope, but you would actually know for certain that this is your hope, that this is your peace. And as we continue on, we're gonna circle back to that. So when you leave here today, you might know what it looks like to be met by the welcome of Christ. But before we get there, we wanna look at our first point today, and that is this, that following Jesus is being sent by Jesus. Hereafter proclaiming peace, he sends them out. Having Jesus declare peace to you is not Jesus making you passive. It's Jesus sending you out for a purpose. You have to imagine what's going through the disciples' head in this when Jesus appeared. Here's their resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who appeared in physical form in a room with all of the doors and windows locked And the first thing he does is say, peace. And now he says, get ready, we've got work to do. We've got something to labor for. And he says this, he says, as a father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Sending them out for what? For what purpose? Well, verse 23 hints at it a little bit where it's that they're to steward, proclaim, and affirm the message of salvation of forgiveness and repentance in Jesus Christ. And what Jesus is saying here in John chapter 20, really specifically to the disciples, he makes general and really clear in Matthew 28 in his ascension when he commissions the church with this. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The apostle Paul picks up on this sentness, this nature of the church being sent out with a message of Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter five, verses 19 through 20. Begins mid-thought, which is always, unless you're at like the first word of a book written by Paul, you're always picking up mid-thought. That is this, that is in Christ... God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God, by grace, saves a people And then he entrusts that people with the purpose of proclaiming salvation, of reconciling others back to God. Because the only only Christians are humble enough to know that if it saved you, it for certain can save others too. For there was nothing special about us except that we received God's grace in Jesus Christ. If you're someone who wrestles with the reality of what I'm called to do, and I think specifically of our college students or young adults transitioning through college and career, what are you to do? Here, the resurrection of Jesus provides us our job description, the thing we've been waiting for to wrap our lives around, to know that regardless of where we work or where we live or what our relationship status, that we know exactly what we're to do in this world. You have been called out and sent out by Christ into the world to help others see and apply the wonderful news of peace be with you in Jesus Christ. But more than that, there's something astounding in what Jesus says. He says, as the Father sent me, I am sending you. That's astounding. 
Now, we're not sent in the same way. No one can atone for sins like Jesus did. That is a unique role that Jesus as fully God and fully man alone was able to do. But what he is saying is that there is a level of intentionality in which God sent Jesus to which now God is sending out his church. And if you read the gospels of Jesus Christ, Jesus saw his purpose with laser focus. He knew exactly what he was here to do. And what's interesting is when he was tempted in the desert by Satan himself, what gave him clarity to say no was knowing the purpose for which the Father sent him. That ultimately it was about reconciling a broken world back to Christ or back to God through the cross of Christ. When Jesus on the opposite end of his ministry was in the garden pleading with the Father, it was his laser focus that if this was the will of God, which he knew it was, that he would embrace it. As the author of Hebrews says, even with joy. You see, here too, the church is given the same intentional purpose which ought to provide us comfort and hope in our own life. We find purpose in our own lives by looking at the way in which Jesus understood his purpose to obey and glorify God. Look at what Jesus shared with his disciples earlier of what this sent life looks like in John chapter 13. I have way too many sticky notes in my Bible today, so I'm just gonna go old school. John 13, verses 14 through 17. If then your Lord, this is the words of Jesus speaking to his disciples after he washed their feet. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. As we are sent out into the world as messengers of Christ, we are also sent out into the world with the posture of Christ that we ought to serve those who are lost. That we ought to honor our commission with the word of the gospel and with the works of the gospel. How you serve your brothers and sisters is part of Jesus' plan for his followers. Jesus actually cares about the ethic of our lives. He cares not just about how we believe in God, but how those beliefs, because they are so miraculously profound, manifest themselves and cares for the Christian community and the broader community at large. How you engage in conversation, relationship, evangelism, service with the message of Christ at work and in your neighborhood and at home, all of it is part of God's purpose. All of it is included in the wonderful sentness we have as being disciples of Jesus. All of life matters to the mission of God. But this is where we see more wonderful hope is we are not sent out alone all of our life is turned upside down in the gospel. But we actually receive the Holy Spirit. He equips us with the third person of the Trinity himself to empower us for this very cause. Now there's something in the context here which is important for us to understand. And this event here in John chapter 20 is private. It is between Jesus and his disciples. And in this room, Jesus was preparing in a very unique way these men to become apostles in the church. These are the men who are going to equip the early church. In fact, the word apostle simply means sent one. And when Jesus here says that he was sent out by the Father, the Greek word is apostolkin. And the office of apostle, this capital A apostle, was a real office in the early church. Jesus gave a special gifting, a special empowerment, a special anointing of the Holy Spirit to these men to establish the early church and to guard sound doctrine. But once churches are set up, the office of apostle goes away. It doesn't exist anymore. Why is that? Because only Christ can breathe out the Holy Spirit on apostles. These are apostles who have been given a special anointing by the Holy Spirit, which ultimately goes away. But that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit goes away. Because where John chapter 20, with these men in this room, there is a special, unique anointing for the apostolic office and the Holy Spirit is given. 
In Acts chapter two, we see that the Holy Spirit is given generally to all who believe, to the new professing Christian church. After Jesus has ascended, he fills the whole church with the Holy Spirit. And this is unique even for the apostles because in this room, this is the only experience we get. But in Acts 2, everyone gets tongues of fire. Everyone starts prophesying. Everyone starts worshiping God anew. There is something even more profound in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that comes to the church. We've been empowered for ministry as the church with the Holy Spirit. You are sent out not on your own to do this for it's crushing but you're sent out with the very power of God himself. When I perform weddings, there comes a time in the ceremony where I say to the individuals, I say, what token do you offer as a symbol that you will perform these vows and keep this covenant? And that token generally is a ring. It's a symbol that we'll do all that we have promised to do, everything in our power to keep our covenant and to fulfill our vows the Holy Spirit that believers get upon conversion to the gospel is the wedding ring Christ gives to the church. It is a promise or a sign of the promise, but even more than that, it is the actual uh, means of the promise itself. The Holy Spirit is the promise that Jesus will keep his word to you, to love you and to use you for his glory. Whenever you wonder if you can do what Christ has called you to do, consider your wedding ring of the Holy Spirit which says that you have the power of God to follow Jesus exactly how Jesus has called you to follow him. That you being sent out have been sent out. Everything Jesus calls you to do, he provides for you to do in the gospel. And it's through this spirit-filled church that the message of salvation in Jesus Christ will save the lost and strengthen the saints. There's an old tradition in many churches where the doors of the church are painted red. And there's all sorts of theological reasons behind that. But one of the reasons has to do with this sent, Holy Spirit-empowered nature of the church. And that is that when anyone comes into the church, we come only through the blood of Jesus Christ. When anyone comes to Jesus, none of your works matter except if you take by faith the blood of Jesus. But also when we leave, we are sent out by the blood of Christ. We are given everything we need for life in ministry in the ongoing work of the gospel applied through the Holy Spirit. So as you consider yourself, I pray, a follower of Jesus, where does this commission shape your life? Where does this wonderful privilege of sentness show up in your career, in your home, in your relationships? Where are you stewarding the power of the Holy Spirit with the words of truth and where are you serving others with the work of truth in the same way that Christ has served you? And as wonderful as this event was for the apostles to experience, it was a bit tainted because Thomas wasn't there. Thomas missed the party. Who knows where Thomas was? We don't know. But it's in light of this absence of Thomas that we actually see the second scene in John chapter 20 where Jesus appears to the disciples again. This is verse 24 through 29. Now Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my fingers into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it by my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. So here we see our second point this morning, and that is that following Jesus is belief in Jesus. We love to give Thomas a hard time, right? We know him as doubting Thomas in scripture, but what a privilege it is for us to read the story of doubting Thomas. Because Thomas was, I'm sure, like you and I would have been, skeptical 
but maybe a little bit optimistic. And I love the model shows for how we ought to handle our doubt in this text. What a wonderful picture of quite literally waiting on the Lord. How many of us would have had some sort of doubting skepticism when they said that the guy who you saw die has now risen again? And on that, maybe we would have said, "Uh, this is the wrong category for me to be in right now. I don't know what you crazy people are thinking, but we've obviously crossed the lines of sanity. I'm out of here. Or how many of us would have become frustrated that everyone else, all of our friends, seemingly had this different experience with Jesus and you didn't? We've just said, what's wrong with me? Am I broken? Is this Jesus not also my Jesus? But here, we affirm Thomas For eight days afterwards, Thomas is still with the disciples. Thomas is still continuing, even with a lack of a clear picture, seeking to find absolution of his mind with the people of God. For those who doubt, for those who wrestle with the experience of others in light of your own experience, look here at Thomas. Thomas knew that despite what he couldn't reconcile, as long as he stayed near to God, he trusted that God would ultimately help him in his weaknesses. And notice the detailed ultimatum Thomas gives. Thomas says, unless I see them, unless he shows them to me, unless I touch all these points, these physical wounds that Christ has, I will never believe. We often make demands to God of what it will look like for us to believe, for us to live for his glory. But the stunning thing about this text is Jesus appeared and he offered all those things to Thomas But Thomas didn't need them, did he? He saw, fell to the ground, and believed. The list we think we need to see in order to believe in Jesus is often a much longer list than Jesus needs to win us to faith. We don't know what we need, but Jesus knows exactly what we need. And in his mercy, he comes to us and gives us eyes of faith. And this is where John, as the author, inserts himself into the narrative. In the two other appearances that kind of bookend this story, it's Jesus who commissions the disciples. But here in this portion, John actually commissions us as readers of the gospel to do something. Look again, verses 29 through 31. Then Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What's John's commission? What does John want you to do? He says, you reader, hearer of this story, believe in Jesus Christ. Where Christ died once for all, John is saying, here Thomas doubted once for all. He doubted for you so that you might see that Christ is risen and he is Lord. He is the one sent from God so that we can effectively be sent by God. You see, knowing the story of Jesus, let us take heart, those who are in the church, and be sober. Knowing Jesus, even being as Thomas was, a physical follower of Jesus, means nothing if ultimately you do not believe that Jesus is the sent one from God who takes away our sins and reconciles us back into fellowship with him. Why should you believe the gospel? Why should you have Jesus-shaped thoughts about Jesus? Because it makes the most sense of the basic realities of our world. We live in a beautiful place, creation which demands organization. I saw this week that physicists were freaking out because they found some particle that doesn't abide by the laws of physics, but guess what? It abides by God's laws and it makes sense of both order and disorder in the world, that there is something else that holds our creation together at its core. We all experience a desire of happiness which is beyond our senses. 
We can't taste it. We can't feel it. We can't smell it. We can't touch it. Why do we have that? We encounter brokenness in this world which is unfathomable that we cannot explain. It tells us that something is broken. But when we see Jesus as the creator of the world, the all-satisfying king beyond our experience and the death-destroying savior, we see above any worldview the most comprehensive view on what we long for, what is broken, and how it's restored. But we do not believe the gospel because it reconciles our minds. We believe the gospel because it enlivens our heart. We believe the gospel not so that we might tweet well or argue affluently. We believe the gospel so that we might have life in his name. This is our confidence before the resurrected king. This is where we know as we lay hold to the altar of faith that Christ says, peace be with you. Here is life if only you would come. Here is hope in times of confusion, if only you would believe. Here is Jesus himself, if only you would have eyes to see. Following Jesus in a life of sentness is a life that daily chooses to believe in Jesus Christ and to wrap our hope around that accordingly so that at the end of every day and at the beginning of every morning we might say with Thomas, my Lord and my God. And from that moment on, everything is different. And this is what we see as we encounter the third scene of Jesus' resurrection uh, with the disciples. This is our last two points. But read the first part of it, John 21, verses 1 through 14. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. And they went out and got into a boat. But that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The, disciples whom, the disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. Nothing helps you swim well like a big old tunic. The other disciples came into the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And so here we see our third point this morning, that following Jesus is trusting in the provision of Jesus. I have to admit, I misunderstood, and maybe you did too, or maybe we import some wrong motivations to the disciples in this text At first, I saw this as this story of the disciples abandoning Jesus, kind of being so confused at the death of Jesus that they just go back to what they knew, of what they once knew how to do of being fishermen, and Jesus is like, no, 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 we're gonna do this. But that's mixing some things. We don't see this call to be fishers of men in the Gospel of John. We see what's actually reasonable here. Jesus has not given the disciples the great commission yet. He has not ascended. He has not filled them with the Holy Spirit. He has begun to prepare them by breathing on them the Holy Spirit. But even we see later at this point, Jesus' instruction to the disciples is to wait for the helper to come. And then the mission will start. And so what we see here is we see two motivations for them headed to the sea. The first was their poverty. The disciples gave up everything to follow Jesus. And this is what they knew how to do. They needed money. 
They needed food to eat. And so most of the disciples were trained fishermen. And so Peter and some of the other, not all of these guys were fishermen, but they decided they'd be like me working on the building. Like we show up and we can hold things. Um, they decided they'd go with Peter to catch fish. That was the first motivation, their poverty. But their second motivation was what motivated them to go fishing at night. And that was fear. In these three pictures, these three appearances, we see this lingering fear in the disciples. The first appearance, the disciples were inside with all the doors locked, it says specifically, for fear of the Jews. The second instance, eight days later, what are the disciples doing? They're again behind locked doors. And this instance, they go out at night. In their poverty, they were hungry. In their association to Jesus, they were in danger. And so they try to meet both of those needs by going out to fish when it was dark. And we see their efforts, efforts of predominantly trained fishermen being unsuccessful all night long until a stranger appeared on the shore. And almost to add salt in the wound, he calls them children. And he's like, you got anything? Like this is the sovereign creator who knows the hairs on our heads. He knows the answer to the question before he asks it. And then he says this, he says, did you try putting the net on the other side of your boat? Which I'm sure is fisherman talk for have you tried turning it on and off again? <laughs> oh, you're right, Jesus. Five feet this direction, world of difference. But they do it. And from that moment on, the hunt was on. Brimming with fish, the disciples realized that this man was the Christ. Peter nearly drowns himself to swim to his savior in the most Peter way, leaves the rest of the work to all the other guys. And they get there and they meet Jesus and they have this wonderful breakfast together. But don't we see in this the provision of Christ to his disciples? What stood out to me was something made really clear in the context of John up until this point. The disciples had nothing when they left to follow Jesus. The disciples had been hiding behind locked doors for fear of the Jews because they followed Jesus. The disciples were forced to go out and find food and income at night. They labored a long time in darkness with wet hands, fumbling, catching nothing. Then they pull in the heaviest load they've ever found, breathing heavy, sopping wet, only to come to the shore. And look at what they find. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus already had the fish. But then he looked, almost humorous, he looked, he said, oh, yeah, you got those fish? He says, we'll take some of those too. <laughs> we'll use those. When we go out into the world to follow Jesus, we can do so free of fear and frustration because Jesus will provide for us everything we need to follow him. This isn't without means. Jesus doesn't rebuke them for going to the ocean, of going back to their jobs. But what we do see here is that he wanted to provide them comfort in all of their work. As we follow the disciples' lives, we don't see this as kind of this normal thing. They don't become this like massive fish-producing, uber-wealthy empire casting nets on the other side of boats and pulling in massive catches. But the point of this miracle is that as we go out into the workplace, into our lives of ministry as sent ones, our financial provision and missional fruit always and only come at the hands of Jesus, which means in all of our want and in all of our excess, we can trust in Christ and his faithfulness. This doesn't mean that Jesus will provide for us what we want when we want it. How many of you think the disciples wanted to go all night catching no fish? If they wrote the script, it would have looked differently. But it does mean that Jesus in his mercy and God in his vast providence gives us exactly what we need when we need it. Where in our financial or in our spiritual lives do we operate as if we are the only ones who can produce fruit? where we are the only ones who will provide for our own needs. But consider Jesus' own words to his disciples in Matthew chapter six. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. 
Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The history of the church is riddled with people whose needs are minor, significant, and sometimes even deadly. But what we see in this story is that sometimes we strain through nights of darkness, but because of what we know about Jesus, we know one day we will eat with him on the shore. One day Christ will provide for us finally and ultimately. And in this life, we don't have to prioritize anything but following Christ as we go to work, as we labor for our loved ones, because we know that Christ will care for us. Walking with Jesus is a life of trusting in Jesus. And this is where we transition to our final point this morning. Following Jesus is life and death for his glory. Following this breakfast, Jesus goes on a walk with Peter and John follows at a distance and we read this exchange in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. He said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God, that is Peter. After saying this, Jesus said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what's that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the disciple, or among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that were to be written. So what do we see in this text? Well, first and foremost, we see how profound redemption is in Jesus Christ. Nothing you do can earn you salvation in Jesus Christ, but salvation in Jesus Christ changes everything you do. And don't we see that in the life of Peter? Remember the last time Peter was around a charcoal fire pit, it was the night when Jesus was betrayed and three times he betrayed Christ. And here around this charcoal pit with the risen and resurrected Lord, Jesus provides Peter three times to reaffirm his love for Christ before Jesus commissions him to ministry in the church. If you've wondered how free Jesus' redemption is, look here. If you've wondered how freeing reconciliation is, look here. When we sing Jesus paid it all, he paid it all. He took all of our wounds. He took all of the ways in which we have screwed up our life. And the gospel not only says that we are loved by God, but that you have a purpose to serve God. Consider another example of this. The former slave trader, John Newton, was converted miraculously and ended up giving his life over and helping fight for the abolition of slavery in England and becoming a pastor for 43 years. 
And look at this powerful transformation that John, bears, John Newton bears witness to when he wrote a summary of his own life. This is what he wrote as he was nearing death of himself. He said, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, who by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the gospel he had long labored to destroy. Jesus saves people broken in sin, and he says to them, follow me. For Peter, Jesus predicted that Peter would be the mouthpiece of the early church, but there would come a time where Peter's arms would be spread by someone as if to get dressed who was not him. John says that this was to predict the kind of death Peter was going to die, and church history records that Peter was crucified. What a stunning transition. Here, Peter, who once denied Jesus to save his own life, was given a purpose and a redemption big enough in which he was willing to lose it. And then there's John, the other disciple who's mentioned here. And Peter sees that it's his death that's going to glorify God. And he points back to John. I don't know if it's in love or in jealousy. And he says, what about this guy? And Jesus says to him, what does it matter if he lives? You follow me. And what we know and what John himself clarifies here is that Jesus didn't promise that John would live forever. But church history also tells us that John was the last disciple to die. Where Peter would follow Jesus into an early death, John would follow Jesus into a long life, yet both lived for the glory of God. What hope we have for our own diverse lives in the story of Peter and John. Two men, two ministries, two portraits of following Jesus, two stories of death, and yet one stunning end that is glorifying God. Jesus saves many people from many backgrounds. Jesus calls many followers, and while we are all following God, we follow him to the same end, and that is glorifying God. This means the provision of Jesus' salvation in the gospel fuels the purpose we have to live holy and commissioned lives in every area of our lives. As followers of Jesus, this story shows us the whole of our lives of all following Jesus is meant to be used for God's glory and that includes the days we live and the day we die. This book ends with John saying Jesus did many things, so many things, that if all of them were to be recorded, there's not enough books in the world. But I think here that John is actually anticipating more things. Things which Jesus' followers would do in light of this. In fact, look at how Jesus builds up this idea of greater things in the book of John. John chapter one, where Jesus surprises Nathaniel when he knew what Nathaniel was doing earlier that morning. He says this in chapter one, verse 50. Jesus answered, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. The disciples are amazed at Jesus and his miracles later on, but look at what Jesus says in John chapter five, verses 20 through 21. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel for as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. So here we see it's in the cross where Jesus says greater things are happening. I am going to make dead men alive. Those whom the father gives will have new life. But look at what Jesus says later on about those who follow him. John 14 verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these he will do because I am going to the Father. How will we as followers of Jesus do greater things? By living life in light of the gospel that Jesus made possible. By living light in light of the resurrected king who has ascended to the Father and given us his Holy Spirit. By living the whole of our lives for his glory in light of the cross where Jesus shared with us his glory. Look at how Paul communicates this truth in Philippians chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. 
as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Brothers and sisters, the call to follow Jesus is a call of weighty service, trust, and mission. But it is a call which provides what it promises. We will glorify God. We, as we follow this living Savior, will draw deep joy from the well of grace as we live for his glory and know him more intimately in this world. This is what you've been waiting for. This is where life begins and each day becomes better even if the world becomes worse because each day we know this Jesus more intimately and treasure his promises more richly. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would call us to follow you with all of the promises of God on the forefront of our lives that we would find it as our expectation in life in how we live and how we die, that we might glorify you and that we might not at all be ashamed when this glorious life of following you looks silly compared to the glorious life of following this world. Lord, we pray that in here that you might speak to us, peace be with you through the work that you have done so that we might do the work you have called us to do. Lord, we pray that we would be encouraged in our own efforts of evangelism, in our own acts of service, which points to the way in which you have served us and reminds us of how the world will one day be. And we pray we do all of this, all of these greater things together as the church, so that all might see and know that Jesus is the Son of God sent into this world to save us. We pray this in your name. Amen.